darkness. Father, we just come to you today and we are so grateful, Lord, that you're sovereign over all the affairs of men, Lord. And that one day you will rule the nations in righteousness and truth. And Lord, today as we come to Exodus chapter 20, we get a taste of of what your righteousness is all about. Lord, and we look at all of these things that you're going to show us in this text and you can see, Lord, we can plainly see that this world is not living for righteousness, Lord, that it's living for evil. Lord, but you tell us in your word that the wages of sin, of breaking your law is death. And Lord, so as we look at this law today, Lord, help us to come to this text in awe. Lord, to realize that we have all failed in keeping this law. That, that Republican and Democrat and, and all of us alike, Lord, have, have failed in keeping this law. There, are, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is not one of us that is holy, Lord. And the wages of breaking your law is death. And Lord, so what this should do for us, and Lord, I ask you to help that happen today as we look at this text. It should bring us all to our knees and thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's in that gospel that we have hope. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. Because you are holy and we aren't. Lord, and your intention is to make us holy. And we're going to get a taste of what that holiness is all about today as we look at this text. So, Lord, it's a very important text. And I ask today that by the power of your spirit that you teach us about the beginning of the law, Lord, and the end of the law and how all of that applies to us. We can only see that if you show us, Lord. And we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. In this week's lesson, we're going to be looking at the very beginning of the law. The law that Jesus, this is what Jesus had to say about that law. He said, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one yod or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. In other words, this law is going to be around to the end of time. The, the Yod is the, little, it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a little slash. The tittle is just a dot that's used to point the vowels. And what Jesus was saying there, that even, every detail of the law, even the, most, the, same, the things that seem the most insignificant, all, every detail of the law is going to be in effect until the end of time. Now, we have to balance that, and it gets a little confusing, we have to balance that with what Paul had to say about the law. Remember what he said about the law in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Paul also says this in in, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. He says, you are not under law. If you believe in Christ, you are not under law. You are under grace. He says over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he says that all our sins have been forgiven because God has wiped out the handwriting, every yote and every tittle of the law that was against us, having nailed it to the cross. And so it sounds like the law has ended. And then Jesus said it's not going to end to the end of time. And so how do we harmonize that? How do, we, how do we bring all of that together? Because both of those statements are true. 
And that's what we want to look at today as we look at the beginning of the law and we'll also look at the end of the law. Well, so we're going to start with the beginning of the law and, and we're going to do that as we look uh, back in our text in Exodus uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time. You remember the Lord had su summoned the Israelites to Mount Sinai and uh, he was going to give them the law. Uh, and he told them, don't come close to the mountain. Uh, I, you know, he said, come close to the mountain, but don't come too close. Because if you so much as touch the base of this mountain, you're going to surely die. And there was this lightning and there was this thundering and there was this uh, sound of this eerie trumpet. And this cloud of darkness, I mean, it was this stench of death. And, and you got to ask the question, why did they receive the law in such a terrifying environment? Well, they, he, he gave, Moses gave us the answer to that question in verse number 20. So go ahead a little bit to verse number 20 and listen to what it says. It says, and Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that and, and that his fear may be uh, before you. And here's the reason. Here's the reason that he gave the law in this horrifying environment. So that you may not sin. So that you'll be so afraid of breaking the law that you will not sin. All right. Now, so they receive this law in fear and trembling and let me tell you this, when you come to this law and you look at this law and you ponder this law, you should receive it in fear and trembling just like they did because the wages of sin is death applied to them and it applies to us too. Now, we want to go to the law now and we're going to look at the law and we're going to look at the very heart of the law. And where do we find the very heart of the law? We find that in the Ten Commandments. And most of you you know, know these Ten Commandments. You've seen them over and over again in your life. But, but let's go over them here uh, real quickly. So pick up with me in chapter number 20, verse number 1. And it says there, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am Jehovah, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, why did God do that for them? Why did God do that? Were they just a really good, faithful, wonderful people? No. He did it because of a promise that he had made to Abraham, that he was going to bless Abraham's seed. Look, look back at chapter 19 and verse number 5. Here's the reasons God did this for them. He did this for them to bless them because they're Abraham's seed. In verse 5 of chapter 19, you can see down there at the last part of the verse, he said, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. That's why I brought you out of the land, to be a special treasure to me above all the other nations. Uh, you shall be, in verse number 6, a kingdom of priests. So you're going to be a priest unto the other nations. You're going to be a witness to the other nations because you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be separated unto me, and one of the things that's going to separate you unto me is the law. Now, look at all God does for them. That's what he does for us. I mean, he takes us out from among the rest of the world. He makes us a kingdom of priests, and he makes us a holy, separated nation. Now, what should that cause us to do? In return, we should be grateful to God. We should love the Lord. 
And so when he gives these first four commandments, these things should just come naturally. This is what we should want to do because of what God has done for us. John says this in uh, 1 John chapter 4. He says, he says, we love the Lord because the Lord first loved us. That's why we love the Lord. People that don't love the Lord don't understand what, how much the Lord loves them. But when you get some kind of inkling of how much the Lord loves you, you're going to love the Lord too. And so really these first four commandments and, and the law is, is the Ten Commandments are broken down into, into two parts. The first four pertain to our relationship with the Lord. The last six pertain to our relationship with one another. But, but the most important part of these commandments is our relationship to the Lord. Because if you take care of your relationship with the Lord, you're going to take care of your relationship with others. If you truly love the Lord, then you're going to love other people. And that's why the first commandment, Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that should be who we are as people of God. Now, let's go to chapter uh, 20, uh, verse number 3, and we look at the very first commandment here. And, and as I say, this commandment will take care of the rest. You get this one down, hey, you're going to be in good shape. You shall have no other gods before me. You shouldn't worship any other god but me. Why shouldn't you worship any other god for me, but me? Look at what I've done for you. Actually, he's the only true and living God. That's the main reason we worship him, but we also worship him because we, we love him. We have no other gods before him. How many of you have, I'm not going to ask that question. Because you, we would probably lie. We would probably say we don't have any gods in our life. Luther says your God is whatever, whatever your heart clings to. Martin Luther was right about that. You can, you can, you can test your own heart. What's your heart cling to? Whatever your heart clings to, that is your God. And I look around the United States of America today, and the reason we're in the trouble we're in is because we've got so many gods. We don't sit down and bow down to statues. Well, some places they do here in, in, in the United States. But most people don't have little gods that they create or build, and then they bow down to those gods and build shrines to those gods. Those aren't our gods. Our gods are things like our iPhone, uh, the almighty dollar, uh, sports, entertainment. Those are our gods. You know, one of the, uh, you say it's a good thing or a bad thing about COVID and, and uh, these elections. One of the things that it's done for me, it has exposed some of these things, these gods, for what they truly are. I mean, Sports stars, look at, look at how they've risen up or gone down during, during COVID and, and, and what, they're, they're, what they're bowing down to and what they're wanting us to bow down to. I heard Aaron Rodgers say a while back uh, that he would have nothing else to do with the Christian faith because how could you, you worship a God who is going to destroy all of mankind in the great tribulation? I just can't. He said, I just can't do that. So, I, you know, I, I, I've forsaken my Christianity. I've looked at, I've watched as Drew Brees has, has kind of thrown Christianity under the bus and, because of his $100 million contract that he doesn't want to mess with. I listen to, I mean, we make movie stars our God, and I listen to, 
I read about Shield LaBeouf, what he had to say about Christians, and not Christians, but about the Americans who voted for, for Donald Trump. He said, he said, those 68 million Americans are, are nothing but idiot Nazis. Now, I don't think I'm a Nazi, and I don't think any of you are a Nazi. We might be idiots because we went out and, and watched his Transformer movies and made him millionaire, uh, but... but uh, uh, we're not idiots and we're not Nazis. But all of these people that we, we make our gods hate us. The only God that loves us is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why we should throw all our adoration on him, all our love towards him. Then he says, in, in, he gives us the second commandment in verse number four. He says, you shall not make yourself a carved a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting, watch this now, the iniquity of your idolatry, of your fathers upon your children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you worship another god, you hate the Lord. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other, or you'll be loyal to one and you'll despise the other. But you can't serve two. It's just not going to work. And so those who serve other gods, God sees them as hating him. And, and he puts a curse on that people. But look at verse number six. But showing mercy and grace and blessing to thousands of those who, who, who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what's it mean when he says you shall not serve them? We, we, I think we can figure that part out. Uh, but he says in verse number four, or in the third commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. What's he talking about there? Well, first of all, you're not to make your own little idols and worship those idols. That's, that's obvious. But he's also saying you're not to make any image of me. We're not to make a painting of the Lord. We're not to make a statue of the Lord. Uh, I don't think we're right in making movies about the Lord. Because, I can, because whenever we as creations try to create the creator, we're going to do it in error. We're not, it, and, and so, so it's going to become blasphemy when we do it. I mean, somebody asked me back... I, I, a few years ago, they were telling me about this wonderful program on TV uh, uh, about the Bible, this series that they had about the Bible. And they asked me if I watched it, and I said, no, I don't watch it because they're not going to present it accurately according to the Bible. And anything that's like that that's given that's not 100% accurate becomes heresy. And so any image of God becomes heresy. When we were, when we were in... Uh, Israel, on our way back, we stopped in Paris. We had a two-day layover, and we went to the Louvre in Paris. And I don't, I, it's not a place I would recommend anybody go. That's, and to me, it's almost a total waste of time. You go there to see the Mona Lisa, and it's a picture about as big as that clock right there, and, and it's really not that impressive, and it's not worth the price of the ticket. 
But just about all the paintings in the rest of the museum are pictures of Jesus Christ. Pictures of Jesus Christ with Mary. And Mary is painted as this divine heavenly creature. And Jesus is painted as this lily white sissy. And these paintings are all over that museum. And, I, and to me, uh, I, you know, they really, it almost made me sick to be there, to see the, the, the heresy in those paintings, the blasphemy in those paintings. And so I think any time that we try to make, uh, carve the image of the Lord or paint the image of the Lord or uh, make a movie about the Lord, that we're in danger of, of heresy. And then he says in, he gives us the next commandment, and this is a scary one here in verse number 7. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not, watch this now, he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's pretty scary. Now, what's he mean by, by taking the Lord's name in vain? Certainly it means uh, cursing the Lord, but it also means in any form or fashion, flippantly using the name of the Lord. And it says here that he will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. So it almost seems like it makes it the unforgivable sin. And if that's so, I would be in deep trouble because in my past I have taken the Lord's name in vain. I have actually cursed the name of the Lord. And I'm sure everybody in this room has done that too. And so it's a good thing that Jesus addressed this issue over in the New Testament in the Gospels in Luke chapter 12 when he said every blasphemy, every blasphemy, every time you've taken the name of the Lord in vain, it will be forgiven. That is a forgivable sin except for one thing. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's where you reject the, 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 the voice of the Holy Spirit, the wooing of the Holy Spirit, to lead, that, who's trying to lead you to Christ. So if you reject that, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and what you've done, you've uh, taken away uh, any hope of being saved, and so all the other blasphemies aren't forgiven, and so you're doomed to hell. But the, it, no, no matter what, whether it's forgivable or not, it's a very serious thing, what the Lord is saying, to take his name in vain. We pray what? Hallowed be your name. And whenever I hear people take the name of the Lord in vain, I cringe. It's got where I can't watch a movie anymore because you, you can't, every movie there's going to be all of these profanities in there and, and, and over and over again you're paying to hear the Lord's name taken in vain. I'm just not going to do that anymore because, because it makes me sick to hear the Lord's name taken in vain. But when I hear people say, oh my God, or oh Lord, or Jesus Christ, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. And I'm going to tell you what, again, as Christians, that's a forgivable sin, but the Lord takes that very serious. He takes his name very seriously. That's why he tells us how to pray, hallowed be your name. Watch 
out for taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not going to send you to hell, but it's, it's, it's an affront to the Lord, and it's not healthy to affront the Lord. All right, now, then he gives the next commandment about the Sabbath in verse number 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For six days the Lord, for six, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he hallowed the Sabbath and we should hallow it too. But what does that mean for the believer? How do we keep the Sabbath? There are a lot of churches, or there are not a lot, there are a lot of churches within a few denominations that still believe you keep the Saturday Sabbath. There are a lot of churches, uh, a lot of denominations that believe that Sunday, has the Lord's Day, has become the Sabbath. And they treat the Lord's Day as the Sabbath. That's why in the South, Years ago, when I was growing up, you had the blue laws, and so everybody went to church. You had nowhere else to go but to church because everything was closed until church was over. We don't have that anymore. And so what, what is the Sabbath for us? I remember years ago when I was pastoring in New Orleans, we had an administrative committee meeting, and we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to have a Super Bowl party at the church. And some people have suggested we do that instead of having Sunday night service and that we uh, have this party and, and we invite lost people there and at halftime we present the gospel. And, and that was usually what churches did. They, get, they played movies of testimonies of athletes and stuff. It would be a hard time finding some now if you, that would give that kind of testimony. But back then there were several that would. And uh, so we voted on it. Uh, we were about to vote on, on it in the administrative committee meeting, and uh, one of the deacons uh, spoke up, and uh, he was a doctor, really fine man. I'm not putting him down at all, but he said, uh, hey, we cannot do a Super Bowl party on Sunday because Sunday is the Sabbath, and we're to keep the Sabbath holy. Well, I understood where he was coming from, but he was wrong on two counts. First of all, we're not under law, so we're not required to keep the Sabbath. We have a different Sabbath, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the second reason, if you are under law and you're going to keep the Sabbath, it's not Sunday, it's Saturday. But anyway, they voted not to have the party, and, and I didn't really care. I mean, I, I knew we'd be out by, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock, and and the, the Super Bowl, I could care less about it to the very end anyway. So, so I, it didn't really bother me. And we, we had church on Sunday night, uh, the week of the Super Bowl. And I was up preaching. And, and don't ever do this, by the way. But, but the, the doctor's wife, this deacon's wife, had her earphones uh, in her ears and a wire coming down her ear. And, and I didn't see the transistor radio, but she obviously had a transistor radio. And so I confronted her after church. And I said, what were you listening to? And she kind of looked like, she said, oh, I was listening to the Super Bowl. And I said, you know, that shows you where we go when we try to keep the law. We, we, what, what do we make ourselves whenever we 
try to keep the law and say we're keeping the law. We make ourselves into hypocrites because sooner or later we're going we're to break that law. So, so what am I saying here? Uh, am I saying that Sunday's not the Sabbath? Yes, I'm, I'm saying that. I'm also saying that we're not under the law, the Mosaic law, and we're not required to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. But we are required to keep the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath all about? The Sabbath was, Jesus said it like this, he said the Sabbath, uh, men weren't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for men. What was it made for men for? It was made so that we could rest, so that we could take time out in our week, set aside a day of our week, and give that day to our families, and more importantly, to the Lord. And that's what the Sabbath should be. So what's the Sabbath for the believer? Well, we, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10. Let me read, read it. You don't have to go there. He says, for he who has entered his rest, his, his Sabbath, has himself also ceased from his works as God has, has done from his. Just as God rested on the seventh day, we enter the, the Sabbath rest of Jesus Christ. When you become a believer... You're born again, and you're given the Spirit of God. Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. What does he mean by that? Does he, does he mean that we're to get in our closets and never stop praying? No. We're to live in an attitude of rest. We're to live in an attitude of resting in Christ, of living with Christ, of walking and talking with Christ. We're to, we're to, we're to rest in him always. Our Sabbath is a, is a continual rest. We rest from our works we don't try to keep the law. We, we, the law is part of who we are, and so we rest from our work, and we trust in him. We trust in him for what he's done for us on the cross, for the blood that he shed for us and for the, his broken body. That's what we rest in. And because he's done, for that, done that for us, we live in an attitude of gratitude. If, if you're a believer... And we love Christ because he first loved us. I mean, we, we, we can't help but want to be with Christ always and rest in him. We don't need to take off a day. Man, you want to take off Sunday and give it to the Lord, that's fine. But you need to take off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday too. Every day belongs to the Lord for a believer. We're always resting in him here, in him. We're always in our relationship with him. We're always building our relationship with him. Then we get to the last uh, six commandments, which pertain to our relationship with one another. Pick up with me in verse number 12. And all you kids, listen to this one carefully. Honor your father and your mother, that your day may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Well, I see all the kids, well, I know what they're thinking right now. I'm not under law, so I don't have to do this. Well, this is a New Testament principle. But you remember well in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul says to the children, he says, children, honor your parents because this is the one commandment that comes with a promise. If you honor your parents, your days will be long. If you don't honor your parents, what's the flip side of that? Your days will be shortened. So honor your parents. I don't care how old they are, Nathan. Honor your parents. He does. He has no choice. <laughs> then verse number 13. 
he says, you shall not murder. Now, that's actually an unfortunate translation there. If you have the, uh, actually, that's a good translation there. If you had the King James, that's an unfortunate translation because it says, thou shalt not kill. And there's a big difference between killing and murder. Uh, to murder means you take somebody's life in anger, you take it in revenge, uh, you take it for personal gain. Uh, killing is a different thing. Uh, and, and, and so some people have used the King James translation of this commandment to say that, to, to justify their pacifism when it comes to wars. They don't believe in wars because they believe the Bible says you shall not kill. The Bible doesn't say you shall not kill. The Bible says you shall not murder. And there are such things as just wars. Some people use the King James Version translation of this to say that we shouldn't have capital punishment because you're killing people. Well, that's not murdering people. That is justice. And you're going to see as we look through some of this law, and you can read through the law on your own, what was the punishment for breaking almost all of these laws? What was it? It was death. It was capital punishment. So, so don't say God's not for capital punishment or the God of the New Testament not for capital punishment. There is such a need for capital punishment. Without it, it without punishment for crimes, a society will disintegrate. And that's what's happening in our society today. It's one of the things that's happening in our society today. Then we get the next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I don't need to dwell on that. It's any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. Uh, you shall not steal. Now, do you need to be told that you shall not steal? How many of you need to be told that you shall not steal? Well, you know, it's funny in California now, stealing something under $5,000 is not a crime. Again, what's going to happen in California is their economy is going to but they got a lot of things happening there that's going to bring down their economy. But that's going to uh, contribute to their economy coming down because businesses can't stay open when people are shoplifting everything that they, they have on the shelves, and there's no punishment for them shoplifting. And so, so hey, we live in an upside-down world right now where good is called evil and evil's called good. It is evil to steal. Now, have I stolen things in my life? Maybe so. But, but, but I know it's wrong. I don't think it's right. Then he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, that includes any kind of lie. When, any, when anybody comes to me and tells me they keep the law, I ask them, do you ever lie? And they say, no. And I say, well, you're lying right now. Because I know you lie. We all lie. Preachers are really guilty of lying. You ought to hear Brandon on Wednesday night. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> An exaggeration is a lie. <laughs> you confess, Brandon? <laughs> Boy, I can confess to that. All right. You shall not. Man, here we get the last commandment. Last but not least, look at this one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything. I mean, let, let's just sum it up. 
anything that your neighbor has. Even as Harley Winford, you, you're not to covet that. Anything your neighbor has, you're not to covet that. Now, when I say this is last but not least, actually I think this is the most important of the last six commandments because it is at the root of all other sin. I mean, the reason people murder is because they covet. The reason people steal is because they covet. Uh, the reason people commit adultery, it's right there in this, this verse, is because they covet their neighbor's wife or they covet their neighbor's husband. We covet. And here's our problem. Covetousness is synonymous with self-centeredness. And our old nature, by nature, our Adamic nature, is self-centered. And so something has to be done about our nature in order to keep the law. Our nature has to be changed. Again, when somebody tells me that they're keeping the Ten Commandments, that they're under law, or for you to be saved, you have to keep the Ten Commandments, I'll come to this verse right here and say, do you covet anything? And our old nature covets things that don't belong to us. We all covet things that don't belong to us. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we don't act on that covetousness. We have a new nature that says, no, I'm not going to let the old nature rule. I'm going to let my new nature rule, and I'm, so I'm not going to covet. But most people do covet, and, and all of us uh, covet and all of us as Christians are to put away that covetousness. And, and when we put away that covetousness, we put away murder, we put away stealing, we put away... Uh, uh, actually, it applies to our relationship with the Lord. Because we blaspheme the Lord because we don't get what we want. When we blaspheme the Lord and we curse the Lord, it's because things aren't going our way. And so all of this is rooted in covetousness. And, and, and again, it's synonymous synonymous with self-centeredness, and self-centeredness is what is bringing the human race down, and it's got to be fixed. Self-centeredness is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's got to be fixed, and that's why you are not under law. You are under grace. All right, verse 18. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But hey, we don't want to hear this God speak ever again. He's way too frightening. I mean, I, we, we, we're not hearing this and we couldn't hear this. I wish we could hear this. I wish we actually could hear the voice of the Lord as he thunders out his Ten Commandments. I wish we could actually see him. I wish we could see the thunder and the lightnings and hear the trumpet and the earth would shake and it looked like this church would fall down on us and we would all take this very seriously and we would say, oh Lord, we've had enough. Give us Jesus. Give us a mediator between you and us. Give us Jesus Christ. And because we can't keep this law. And, and it should strike fear in all of us. And we should say that we can't keep this law. And so uh, they have the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses, 
they kind of back off away from the Lord. And Moses, man, Moses was a brave guy, i got to tell you. He was, he, he, we're told uh, in other passages that he saw this uh, scene and he was in fear and trembling too. And so, but he, he, he takes a step forward and he goes toward the Lord. And at this point, he's given the Mosaic law. Now, we're not going to cover the, all the Mosaic law. There's no way we can do that. And I'm trying to do an overview. And, and uh, Actually, we could do it if you almost stay here another uh, three or four hours, but I don't think you do. But, but uh, I want to at least talk a little bit about the Mosaic law because it was given to the nation of Israel. And I think I, I, I told somebody the other day, I believe the United States was formed almost like a second Israel. That's not who we are. And I'm not saying we are the second Israel, but but God gave this world another chance almost. He he, he selected a nation and a people to reach out to the world. And the United States has done it with Christianity. And the United States has done a great job of that up until now. But all of that witness is dwindling away as we lose our purpose I think we threaten our very existence. But, but uh, uh, the Mosaic Law, a lot of our laws, a lot, I mean, you're going to see as we look at just a little bit of this today, you're, you're going to see a lot of the laws in America are based upon the Mosaic Law. A lot of common law is based upon the Mosaic Law. And so it's, it's really interesting stuff, and it certainly has application to us. But we're not going to cover it all. There's 615 commands in the Mosaic Law. You can break it down into four categories. Uh, you have what's called the civil law, which is, which is very much like our tort law, uh, civil cases. where You go to civil court, uh, a lot of what, the way it would be judged would be judged according to the Mosaic Law. Uh, then, there, then you have the, uh, the moral law, uh, and, and really... It covers things like sexual sins, how you treat slaves, how you treat foreigners. There's all sorts of things uh, included in the moral law. But, but really, if you're a moral person, the moral law just, just means you use common sense and you act in a moral way. But, but God gives them specific laws related to their morality because he knew they weren't going to act that way. And, and, uh, and, and as you see a society deteriorate, you see their moral law go with it. And again, that's another sign that we're in deep trouble in America today because all the moral laws have been pulled back. There's, they're being pulled back, and, and, and as they're pulled back, uh, society is, our society is deteriorating. Uh, then you have the ceremonial law, which is important because it is a shadow of what we have in Christianity. And so in the ceremonial law, you have the feast, you have the offerings, you have the tabernacle, and then you have also the dietary laws, which really have... No application to Louisiana, people in Louisiana, because Louisiana is not kosher. I can tell you that right now. The food we eat is not kosher. And if you're under law, and you've got to keep the law to keep your salvation, don't eat crawfish. I can tell you that right now. You do not want to be eating crawfish because you're breaking the law and you're losing your salvation. That's not happening. That's not the way it works. All right. All uh, right. The purposes of the law. Let me give you the purposes of the law. The purposes of the law are to identify sin. We talked about this last week. We all have a conscience. We know what's right and wrong until we sear that conscience. And, and, and so 
We shouldn't have to have sin identified for us. But God's going to give them this law so they can identify sin, what he sees as sin. It's also the law is given to restrain sin, to punish sin. You look at the law and the punishments for the breaking the Mosaic law are very extreme. We're going to see that as, as we look at a few of these things. Uh, what I like about reading the Mosaic law is that it reveals the character and heart of God. Uh, it, it, it magnifies his holiness. It magnifies his justice. And so to me, it definitely is, is worth studying to, to look at the, the uh, Mosaic law uh, for that reason, if none other. And then let me tell you maybe the most important reason for looking at the law, and that is that it shows us our need for grace because we cannot keep the law. And I, again, I, I really get perturbed by these pastors that say we're under law and we're and we got to keep the law to stay safe because uh, they're, they're, what they're doing, they're looking at a different law. They're lowering the standard to don't eat, smoke, drink, or fool around, and that law has a lot more to it than just that. And, and what matters about the law isn't so much what takes place on the outside, it's what takes place on the inside. If your heart is evil and you think evil, in God's eyes, it's as bad as doing evil. And, and don't tell me that you don't have evil thoughts, that all your thoughts are holy, that all your thoughts are perfect. I don't know anybody... In fact, don't even tell me that because I'll lose all respect for you if you tell me that because you'll get, put yourself in the category of a liar. Because we have evil thoughts. We, ha we have self-centered. Self-centeredness is evil in God's eyes. We have self-centered thoughts. We have covetous thoughts. And that's why we need grace. That's why we need the gospel. Now, I said this as we started the Ten Commandments. All the law is rooted in the Ten Commandments. Actually, really, you go back, it's rooted in the heart of God. But God's heart is revealed in the Ten Commandments, and that's why the Ten Commandments are so important. But all this Mosaic law, you can find them in the Ten Commandments. You don't have to get all the details here, and that's not why we're not going to cover every single detail of uh, the Mosaic law. So Moses draws near to God, and God begins to give him the Mosaic law. He gives him, first of all, the law for the altar. We'll talk about that when we talk about the tabernacle. Uh, he gives him the law concerning how you're to treat your servants. Uh, and and, and what, how, what, what would be the one word you would think of when you think of how do you treat your servants? Kindness. Kindness. And, and that's what the Mosaic law is all about, treating your servants kindly. kindly. Laws concerning violence is the next section that he gives. Uh, and you can sum that up uh, with the doctrine we know as lex talionis, uh, which is an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Look down at verse number 23. This is the law, according to the Mosaic law. But if any harm follows, uh, then, verse 23, verse 23, you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. That's in the Mosaic law. That is God's law. The law that he gave to the nation of Israel. 
That is his law that he gave to them. Now, how does that apply to us? As Christians, what does Jesus say we're to do? We're to turn our cheek. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to love our enemies. That doesn't delete this law. But as Christians, as individual Christians, we're above doing eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We're to show mercy like God's shown mercy to us. God didn't get an eye for an eye or a tooth from tooth from us, did he? When we did wrong, what God did, he showed us mercy. We've blasphemed God. We've rejected God. We've uh, uh, destroyed the things of God in our life, and yet God has shown us mercy. He didn't take out revenge, and we're not to be taking out revenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So this is a na- has a national application, but let me say this. There, is, there needs to be punishment for sin in a nation. If you don't have punishment for sin in a, on a national level, that nation is going to deteriorate right before your very eyes. And again, as I've said over and over again today, that's what we see happening in our country uh, today. All right, then at the end of chapter 20. Uh, one, he gives the, he gives the uh, laws uh, concerning animals, and basically you're responsible for your animals. If your animals do harm to other animals, then you're responsible, uh, and, and you're to be rewarded or, or, or uh, given compensation if, if, if animals do harm to you. Uh, we're responsible for our property. Uh, verse, uh, I mean, chapter number 22, the first part of chapter number 22, he gives... Uh, the laws related to property, and, and, and those are tort laws. You have, if you have property, if you drive a car, you could actually put that in here. And you, uh, if you drive a car, you're responsible. If you hurt somebody, if you have any kind of property, you're responsible if that causes harms to other people uh, uh, because of your negligence. And so I'm not going to go through all of that. Then we get to the moral laws, and, and uh, I think they're, they're important. Because, again, they reveal the heart of God. They reveal what God thinks about morality, not what this new world, uh, uh, the new United States of America thinks about morality. It's what's important is what does God think about morality. Well, let me show you a few of these. Let me, and and they're, they're common sense, too. Look at verse number 18 of chapter 22. You shall not permit a sorceress to live, a witch you're to kill. That's, that's the way God sees it. Uh, whoever lies with an animal, surely shall be put to death. Man, i got to tell you, people are doing that in the United States of America today. Can you imagine having sex with an animal? How sick is that? That's how sick we've become. I mean, when I say put them, when it says put them to death, I don't see a problem with that at all because that person beyond uh, repair if they're doing things like that. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Well, we would be wiped out tomorrow as a nation if that was the case in our nation. That's the Mosaic law. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know, there's a great principle at play in all the law, and that's empathy. If you've been treated bad, and you know how it feels to be treated bad. Why would you treat others bad? I mean, empathy is a really good thing. If you learn from your hurts and pains, 
And, 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 and you're comforted by God, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think, 2 or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think it's 2 Corinthians. We comfort others with the comfort that we've been given. And, and so that's what empathy is. We feel for others because we've felt their pain in our lives too. And if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you. If you don't learn those lessons, there's something wrong with you. So, so you shouldn't treat, mistreat strangers, he says, because you were strangers in Egypt. You shall, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Isn't that New Testament principle? James, what does James say over in the book of James? He says, this is pure and undefiled religion that you take care of widows and orphans. God's, God looks upon widows and orphans as being very, very special to him. And if you harm a widow or orphan, you're offending a holy God. Listen to what he says. He says, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear them, their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wife shall be widows and your children shall be orphans. So if you don't take care of widows and orphans, if you do wrong things to widows and orphans, I'm going to make your children and your wife, I'm going to make your wife a widow and your children uh, an orphan. And then he gives a moral principle here that I be great if people follow. He says, if you live money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. You know, something that really bothers me is when you go into the poor parts of town and what you see there, you see uh, pawn shops which are taking their goods, you see, and other people's goods, you see, you see paycheck, payday loans, uh, which, which is, is an exorbitant amount of interest. Uh, you see furniture rental places that charge them an exorbitant amount of interest, and, and, and they're feeding on the poor. Well, that's not a, you know, God doesn't, doesn't like that. That's immoral to him. Uh, then in verse number 28, he says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. That's one we might want to memorize, put on the refrigerator. You shall not curse God or revile a ruler of your people. What's he saying? When you, you can reverse that. When you curse a ruler of your people, you are reviling God. I take back what I said about the governor last week. Thank goodness I got that in before the lightning hit. <laughs> Why is that? Because all authority, we're told in Romans chapter 13, all authority, every authority, every person in authority has been given by God. If they stole this election and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, which they're in now, become our president and vice president, they are there because God has given them that authority for his purposes. And we better not be cursing them. Y'all remind me of that as days pass and things happen. 
after January the 20th, whenever that inauguration is? Y'all remind me of that. Stop and think about it a minute, though. In the days of Jesus, there were a group of politicians that were ruling who had lied and killed and stolen and cheated to be in the very position they were in. Men like Herod, men like Caesar Augustus, men like Pontius Pilate, men like Caiaphas and Annas, those two priests who bought the priesthood. They were in charge of the Jewish priesthood. They were in charge of having Jesus crucified. They, they did wicked things, and I'll tell you where they're at right now. They're not in heaven. They're not in heaven. But who put them there? God put them there. God did, put them there, the most wicked man in history, or for the most wicked man in history, to do the greatest thing on earth he had ever done. And that was to send his son to a cross to die for my sins and for your sins. And I guarantee you, whoever sits in that White House, they've been placed there by God to do God's bidding. They don't know it. They hate God. They curse God. They don't believe in God. They curse God by their, and blaspheme God by their actions and their words. But they're going to do God's bidding. And their God's bidding might be that they come against Israel, that they pull the United States back away from Israel, and just watch God work. You're going to see some amazing things in your life. If you keep that focus and realize that God is in control of all of this, it's going to make it a lot easier to swallow in the coming months. All right. Then he says in verse number, jumping down to verse number 31, he says, and you shall be holy men to me, separated but watch this, Louisiana people. You shall not eat meat torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it all to the dogs. Now, in a modern-day scenario, don't eat roadkill is what he's saying. <laughs> I'm sure you heard the story about Thibodeau and Boudreaux. Have you all heard that story? They were walking through the woods one day, and a spaceship landed right in front of them. And out walked two aliens. And Thibodeau looked at that spaceship and he said, Man, what do you think those critters are? And Boudreaux said, I don't know. Cook some rice. <laughs> don't eat roadkill. If you don't get anything else out of this today, don't eat roadkill. And then he talks about justice in this next section. And we're in an age where it seems we're doing just the opposite. I'm going to run through this real quickly here. He says, you, you shall not circulate a false report, uh, fake news. How about that? Do not put your hand on the wicked to be an unrighteous uh, witness. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. I wonder about this voter fraud. Uh, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. I wonder about these riots. Or you, you testify in a dispute as to, to, to turn aside after many to pervert truth and justice. That's what we see happening before our very eyes. Uh, 
then you jump down to verse number 8, and you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Our, our government is constantly taking bribes, Republican and Democrat. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger. And again, you see the sympathy, for you uh, know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Ithaca. You know what it feels like to be a stranger. Then he gives the law of the Sabbath. Uh, the law of the Sabbath uh, basically uh, relates to, to resting the land. Uh, they were to rest the land every seventh year, uh, and they were to let the poor use the land and eat what, was, what grew from the, from the land were amongst the weeds and stuff, and they were to let them have it and let the land rest. Every good farmer knows that you're to rotate your crops you're to rest your land. They didn't rest the land. And remember what God told them when they went into captivity? You didn't rest the land. I'm going to rest it for you for 70 years. It's going to get its rest. And then he goes on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop there because we're running out of time. But, but you get a good taste there of uh, the beginnings of God's law. Before we leave here today, I want to talk about the end of God's law. This is important. So, so. Hopefully I can get us through this in just a few minutes, but, but it's important, so uh, I don't want to leave off without giving you this information. Remember what we said earlier. Now, we quoted a verse earlier. Paul in Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Romans 6, 14, you're no longer under law. Uh, that means our righteousness doesn't come from keeping the law. It comes from, from grace. Uh, through grace. But with it, even those verses out there, and they have throughout the Bible, the, the New Testament, uh, we, we're told about grace. We're told in the Old Testament about the New Covenant. There's still lots of teachers out there, as I said earlier, that say we're still under law, and if we don't keep the law, then we lose our salvation. Somehow you, you're saved by grace, but then, then you, you fall back under law and you keep the law. If you don't keep the law, then you then you lose your, your salvation. Now, is that so? Uh, uh, you think you're under law? You think you're under law? Go with me to, go with me to 1 Timothy real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Someone says they're under law. Take them to this passage right here. 1 Timothy, over almost to the end of the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Knowing this, that the law is not for a righteous person. The law is not for people who are born again, believers in Jesus Christ, who've been made righteous, 100% righteous. You're as righteous in God's eyes as you're ever going to get. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for lawless and insubordinate, for ungodly and for sinners and for unholy and for profane and for murderers and, and fathers of murderers and mothers of manslayers for fornicators and sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Look, if you're, if you're still one of those, yeah, the law's made for you. You need to stop it. But we're, that's not who we are anymore. Such were some of us, but we're not that anymore. If we live according to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which means our righteousness isn't found by keeping the law. Our righteousness is found through the blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. Now, so, so the law isn't made for us. So you can say for us 
as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, the law has ended for us. But listen to what Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you because you are under grace and not under law. In other words, because we've been saved by grace doesn't mean that we keep on sinning. Meganetho may it never be. I mean, we've been changed. Our heart's been changed. We're under a new covenant. Listen to what Ezekiel says. He says, and, and, I, and, and this is quoted in the book of Hebrews, quoting from Jeremiah, but it's the same thing. He says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and you will do them. In other words, I'm going to change you so that you keep my law because the law becomes part of who you are. You won't be able, if you're a born again believer, you can't walk any other way but in righteousness. Now, you, you can, the question is somebody's going to ask, if that's so, then, then, then why do I still sin if I'm under this new covenant? Why do I still sin? Because we still have our flesh. Our corruptible flesh has not been redeemed. And so there's this war that goes on between the spirit and between the flesh. But your spirit, your new man, your new woman, your new creation in you when you're born again, and you know this if you're born again, is absolutely perfect. It loves the law. It wants to keep the law. It, as Spurgeon says, a Christian can do anything they want to do. Because what you want to do when you get saved has been changed. What you want to do, you want to keep the law of God. And so we don't always do that. We fail at that. And Paul says, don't let sin have dominion over you because you realize who you are. You've been changed. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we do that on a practical level? We have to deny ourselves. Remember what Jesus said, take up your cross daily and, and, and deny yourself and take up your cross daily? That's, a, that's an ongoing thing we have to do. We have to deny our self-centered self. We have to deny that. It's an ongoing war we fight. And, and if we deny it, we're blessed. If we don't deny it, even as Christians, we live a cursed life. I don't have time to go there today. We'll finish. We'll pick up with that next time. But, but a lot of people who know Christ are living, I'm not saying, we all have trials, so I'm not talking about trials here, but I'm talking a life where you're living a cursed life. It's almost as if God is against you. Even though you're a born-again believer, it seems like God is against you everywhere you go. The reason he's against you is because you're living for your flesh. You're sowing to your flesh, and you're reaping corruption. We have to deny ourselves. And if we deny ourselves, the law is part of who we are, and we will do righteousness, and we will be blessed. God wants to bless our lives. I don't care who the president is. God wants to bless our lives if we will just deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for, for just all that you've done for us, Lord, uh, on the cross, Lord. We thank you that we're
see this law, Lord, and we see just how holy you are. We see all of the punishment that comes with this law on a civil level, Lord, but on an eternal level, it's even worse than that. But, Lord, we've been saved because of your grace. We've been saved from the penalty of law. And not only have we been saved, we've been given your spirit. We've been given your spirit of righteousness and truth. Lord, help us to live that out as we deny ourselves and follow you. We can only do that by your grace too, Lord. And so we ask for lots of grace. And Lord, I just thank you for, for, for your word and, and for all of these people who have so patiently listened to it today. I just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.